0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Modern Method. I say good morning, that's just when this episode is being recorded, but if this is the afternoon for you, then good afternoon, and if it is the evening, then good evening. Okay, so it's been a long time since we've been on the air and today you've just got me so it looks like this is my first solo that i'm going to do for you and i promise to make it as entertaining as i can (laughs) but i'd like to do a catch-up of what has been happening sort of in the world and um kind of in just our lives since we were last on the air so last time we spoke about uh abolition with a special guest that we had on and i thought that was a great discussion Um, We weren't going to end there, but so many things have happened since then. We used to be recording from Colorado, but we are now, well, Colorado and Ohio, I suppose. But we are now doing that from North Carolina and Ohio. So uh, things have changed, at least in your gracious host's life, that has not allowed us to put out new episodes for the last several months. So. there's a little bit of background for you there, and I just wanted to sort of give everybody some information on what, what I have been up to then. So I have a new career. That new career takes me to some pretty cool places. It is in international technology consulting, uh, mainly for the steel industry, and I'm going to omit the names of companies and things like that because just don't want to get in trouble. But that allowed me to spend several weeks in Germany. And I thought that was a really great experience. So that means that I get to see a bunch of things that I never saw before. And I can report that back to you as I experience these new things. So one of them, um, which is a big topic is obviously we've spoken about uh, the invasion of Ukraine and the war in Ukraine with Russia and the Ukrainians that has been happening for now over a year. And that is pretty crazy. So no one thought that it was going to last this long. I'm just not going to go too deep into this because we've talked about it before, and I know that everybody's heard about it. But um, no one expected it to last this long for a couple reasons. One, we didn't think that Russia was going to do this bad, and they are. And that was pretty evident from the start. They, If it went on for more than just a few weeks or even a month, then that was pretty bad, and it did, and now we're in our, we're starting our 13th month on this. And I would be pretty worried about their sustainability, but more on the Russian U- invasion of Ukraine later in just a little bit, I guess, because I would like to talk about the situation with their refugee crisis that is happening, I guess, all over Europe because there's exodus out of Ukraine, obviously, of uh, mainly women and children, and even I mean, even men, older men, or men that just don't want to have to fight because they're defecting. But we see the same thing happening in Russia too. There are hundreds of thousands of men who have defected from the Russian Federation when their draft numbers were called. The last I remember reading about this was more than four hundred thousand Russian male civilians left Russia when their draft numbers were called because this is a war that nobody believes in except Vladimir Putin. And maybe some crazy nationalist Russians that want to go do it. Or it might even be some of the people in the new militia that was created to use prisoners as part of the war machine because they were promised, you know, when we win this, if you survive and you come back home, all of your... Uh, transgressions against the state will be forgiven. And of course, they're being put in first infantry and just slaughtered. Um, but they're making some progress for the Russians as a whole, which is why it's good for Putin and he doesn't care about them anyways. He would rather just throw them in there. And if they die, they die. But hey, at least the soldiers didn't die, or at least we just have more numbers. But anyways, um how that sort of tracks back to what I was going to say about my experience, at least when I was in Europe recently was there was just a a huge just amount of refugees um in the train stations I mean in Dusseldorf in Amsterdam where I was in and in some other spots of people asking you know asking for help and it was really hard to see it was actually a very hard situation because these aren't just people and I'm not going to say that if you're homeless then that makes it better it doesn't but I mean This is this is totally different. These are people that have literally their entire lives have been uprooted and will never, ever be anything close to the same. Their homes might be completely destroyed and gone. All of their food and everything that they had in their pantries completely raided by the invaders and just just stolen from them. And many of them were women with children. And it was a really hard sight to see when I was traveling. Um, It was, yeah, I just just can't really describe it. So it's just one of those things that we never think about here because we're not in that situation. I mean, we're not going to get the same, I guess, types of refugees here that they have there. I'm sure that maybe in places like D.C. you could see some of this happening. Uh, but it, it's just kind of impossible to have that same kind of um, atmosphere and situation here than it is over there. And we forget sometimes that there is a, a whole different situation happening in Europe that we hear about. But if you never see it, then it doesn't really give make a significant impact on you. But this one did, at least for me, in a way that I didn't expect. I mean, okay, I could say I know that this is happening I could say, I know that I've seen this and I, whatever, or not seen this, or I know that I've heard of this and I know that it's going on and I know that it's horrible. But then when you really see it and are confronted with it, it's, you want to help as much as you can, but especially if you're somebody like me, then you can only help so much. And I'm not, I don't have any roots there. I can't offer them uh, somewhere to stay. I'm not sure if I necessarily, you know, would or not for, for a few different reasons. It's just, it's so unique for them and for you as the person that they come across, but you give them what you can and which is what I did, but, um, it, it doesn't, I mean, I guess it could make a difference for them, but it obviously it does. And that's why I, I did give to, you know, some of the people that I had come across, but, um, not being a native to the European Union even as a whole, it's just frustrating too sometimes. And that's where I just come to the um, conclusion and the realization of just what an absolute monster Vladimir Putin actually is. And he is one of the worst humans alive today. And people have waged war for less reasons throughout history too. And the same exact thing happens, but because this is so on such a, you know, international scale, because we have television now, we have YouTube, we have anything and everything that people can broadcast these atrocities on that we can see in real time is what makes this so hard to swallow. And in a lot of ways is, is how whatever the next big war is happening has kind of already started. So that's where I want to get into, um some of the things that have been happening elsewhere in the world since we've been off the air, too. So we know that, just to recap on some big events, um, the queen is gone. The second longest reigning monarch in history, I think that the, the title of longest reigning monarch ever still belongs to King Louis XIV, but that's because he was crowned at such a young age. But other than that, she... Um, is the longest reigning, at least in British history, and she passed in I want to say September, right after we aired our our last episode. Is when she passed, which means God save the king is now King Charles is in charge. <laughs> Charles is in charge, and he has a lot that he's taking over. Um, he also has had two. Prime ministers already. So we spoke about Liz Truss, who was the who is now the former British prime minister, who succeeded Boris Johnson. She was elected out of the Conservative Party, and she was chosen as a successor. lasted six or seven weeks, and quit because she didn't think that she could do it. She said that she's a fighter. She will not give up. She will not quit, and then she quit. So, <laughs> I don't even really know what to say about that one. That was really—I uh, think—that was shocking for everybody. Um, maybe not so much in the U.S., but she's the shortest. She has the shortest reign as a prime minister in Britain's history, so that should tell you something. Um, and then her successor is Rishi Sunak, and Rishi Sunak uh, was the runner-up for the for the PM leadership position when Liz Truss was elected. It was between Liz and Rishi. And now Rishi is her successor. That was pretty unanimous and it happened very quickly. And he has such a big task ahead of him because inflation for them is ridiculous. Right now they are just spiraling into a recession like they haven't seen for a really long time. And that is partially due to the cost of energy, which relates back to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine because that has disrupted the entire energy grid in Europe. And that's something that I want to talk about in a future podcast with people who know a little bit more about that than I do. So we will get there at some point, but that's part part one of why their economy is disrupted right now. And then part two is because of Brexit. It has not produced the economic uh, bonanza as the um, Council on Foreign Relations has described it, from the proponents of Brexit. So what is happening now is, everyone knows what Brexit is, or was, or whatever. So Brexit was Britain's um, exit from the European Union so that they could be more independent, and they just so that they have a more independent economy because they wanted to be able to control it and the entire country voted on this in like 2016 and then it took a long time with so many pushbacks and long story short Boris Johnson got it done and finally pulled them out of the European Union I think in 2021 is when it was finalized maybe and since then they have had a whirlwind of issues with trade so the biggest thing that everybody was worried about when Brexit was being worked on after after the election to leave, after the vote to leave, and then before they actually left, there was this issue called the Irish backstop because they were worried about what was going to happen with trade coming from the people's, well, I guess it's this Republic of Ireland, and then into Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland is part of The U.K. and the Republic of Ireland is not, and there was just nothing set up there. So, okay, so trucks come through there all the time, this border, because it's the only land border that the U.K. has with the European Union then, because the Republic of Ireland, I think, was part of it. It, I might be misquoting that there. Maybe it's its own independent thing, but regardless, it's not part of the U.K. So that was the only land bridge that they had with another um, trade, with another economy. And the idea there was, what is going to happen when trucks come through here? How will they get taxed? What are the rules going to be? Are there any kind of import tariffs or something? Or what if we're going to export through there and nothing was worked out? Well, really the same thing is happening with everywhere. So the English Channel is their main trade route, probably from Dover to Calais or Le Havre. Or Amsterdam, where Britain trades with the rest of Europe, and they still don't have many things figured out. There it has caused a lot of delays in in trading just things. And I saw a video specifically of a brewery in Scotland that was saying it's not even worth it anymore to try to trade with somebody else because someone might order something. And whereas before, when they were part of the European Union, they could get it to them in two days, but pretty much as fast as you could run it there was as fast as you could get it to them. But now there's all of these, um, just a bunch of basically more paperwork that they have to do that is really confusing and time-wasting because there isn't a good system set up in place. And people in Europe now are cutting ties with companies based in the UK because it's just so difficult. Why even try And they can do the same things in the rest of Europe because they have the industrial prowess of Germany in there. And then they have France and then they have Italy and then they have all of Eastern Europe minus Ukraine now, I guess. And, And just so many different options and including the U.S. that we trade with a ton. So why would we even, we as in the European Union, why would we even worry about what the U.K. is doing? So that has completely just put a big roadblock in the UK's ability to grow its economy this past year. And what experts are saying now is that the UK economy will actually go downward, and it will be the only major country in the world that will actually see an economic relapse, or not relapse, a uh, re- like decline. And to put that into perspective, Russia's economy has will even grow this year. So that should that should tell you all you need to know there. But we also have a bunch of humanitarian crises happening throughout the world, not just in places like Ukraine or Hong Kong and now Taiwan, which I want to talk about in a minute, but also for Iran. So there were Iranian protests uh, starting sometime late last year over a woman who was punished for the way that she wore her hair. So I have up here right now a page from the Council on Foreign Relations that is going to do a much better job than me at summarizing what happened, and I'm going to read that right now. So this is what it says from the Council on Foreign Affairs, which is a think tank out of Washington, D.C., Regimes born out of protest can also be toppled by them. The reality must haunt the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran, who in 2022 saw the most significant challenge to their rule since they came to power in 1979. The protest began in September when morality police, this is in quotations, in Tehran arrested Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman visiting Iran's capital city for failing to cover her hair properly. She died in police custody. When the news reached her hometown of Saqqaz in northwestern Iran, hundreds of people gathered to condemn her death in Iran's mistreatment of women. The protests quickly spread throughout the country as Iranians across social, class, and ethnic lines marched to the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom. Iranian leaders blamed the United States and Israel for engineering the protests, though the driving force was the government's political repression, corruption, and mismanagement of the economy. The government tried to quell the protests with force. By December, Iranian security forces had killed as many as 450 protesters on the streets, and the government had begun publicly executing protesters convicted in rushed trials for crimes against the state. The persistence of the protests in the face of government repression prompted speculation that Iran is in the early stages of a new revolution, perhaps. But so far the regime has shown no signs of splintering and no one has emerged to lead the opposition. Should that change, Iran's theocratic regime could be headed to the ash heap of history. And it very well could be too, because there are so many different there are so many disruptions throughout the entire world for um for tight governments just mistreating people and killing them for absolutely no reason. And the other big one being China. And that's going to quite possibly start a new world war because those those types of people are being more aggressive than they have been probably since the 40s or since the 70s in Iran's case. And it is really scary and it's going to take a village to to turn the tide on this. So you can even see that with the with the covid policies in China. And this is this is something that I want to talk more about with some of our other regular panelists that I hope are going to be able to come back on soon because I really want to see their perspective on what's going on. So let's switch gears now to um the tensions with China. Those came to a new crescendo this week. Specifically yesterday, when an F-22 fighter shot down a Chinese, what they call, weather balloon that crossed the entire continent of North America, minus Mexico, I guess. So it started with this balloon crossing over into U.S. airspace in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. And this happened January 28th. So this timeline is really important. So I'm reading this from a website or 13 Eyewitness News out of Texas, West University Place, I guess is where this is showing it. I'm pretty sure that this timeline is is fairly accurate because there's no reason to not report this correctly and you can fact check this from somewhere else. But if you want to, I encourage you to do that. So anyways, January 28th, the balloon entered US airspace uh, over the Aleutian Islands in Alaska according to a senior military official who is not named. By January 30th, two days later, it had entered Canadian airspace over the Northwest Territories. And then by January 31st, the balloon then traveled south and reentered U.S. airspace over northern Idaho. Again, that was one day. It crossed, like, all of Canada. If you look on a map, the Northwest Territories... In British Columbia, and Alberta, which are the three provinces that it kind of would have had to have touched, and Yukon, those are enormous territories. They are ridiculous. So it took two days to go over Alaska because it was probably slowing down since there were speculating that this was a surveillance balloon. We're not even speculating, it was. So this was a surveillance balloon that went over Alaska, which is smaller than Northwest Territories, Yukon, British Columbia, and Alberta. Maybe by, well, maybe it's not much smaller, but the area that this thing covered, the Aleutian Islands to to Canadian airspace, would have been smaller. And then from there, it only took one day to get back to the U.S. over by the tip of Idaho and Montana. So this is really important that we understand this. That by February 1st is when sightings actually started to happen by civilians. So February 1st at 4.21 p.m., one of the earliest sightings confirmed by ABC News was Wednesday in Reed Point, Montana. And then there was a second one two hours later where it was filmed the balloon was filmed east of Reed Point in Billings, Montana. And other footage captured it over Billings over the next hour. Two days later, it is then spotted in Kansas. And then long story short, as you can look this up yourself, yesterday on February 4th, it was already on the coast of South Carolina. This was at 60,000 feet, and it was estimated that the rough size of this weather balloon was the size of three school buses. So it's enormous. Here's the thing, though. Biden shot it down. Biden ordered uh, the military to shoot it down when it had reached the beach on the east coast of the United States, and it had started all the way on the west coast of Alaska. That is a that is such a huge amount of land coverage. It's almost inconceivable how how much land, U.S. land and Canadian land that that thing was able to survey over the course of just several days. And no one touched it, no one did anything about it. So we had contacted China about it to ask them what was going on, because we knew whose it was. And they said, this is a weather balloon. This is a civilian weather balloon. They got pushed off course by prevailing winds. Um, I'm sorry, but how does a weather balloon stay in the air crossing five, six, maybe even as much as 8,000 miles and not hit the ground? Or how does it do that and you can't go get it back, you can't do anything about it, you can't whatever. But besides that, it's obviously not a weather balloon. It's not a civilian weather balloon that was put up in the air. And because nothing there is civilian, that kind of technology is not available to a private organization The way that it is in the United States to where a private organization like SpaceX or something could throw something in the air and the government has nothing to do with it. You just have to have the proper permits and stuff for it. The Chinese government controlled that thing from the very beginning and they could have to avoid an international crisis, could have and should have stopped it from ever exiting its airspace anyways. Or once it got into Russian airspace since they're friends, they could have done something about it, but they obviously don't care. And that obviously isn't the truth because they're all liars anyways. That is one of the most corrupt regimes on the planet right now. It has been, I think, for a long time, so. Anyways, um, there's no way that that was, that China couldn't have controlled it because it was part of the government's, it was the government's property anyways. There was nothing civilian about that thing. And Mm -hmm. we're assessing, and I'm going to just believe the Americans on this one, that that was a surveillance balloon. So they say, okay, don't touch it. Uh, It's a civilian Weather balloon, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, it's over our airspace, anyways. It's a foreign object. It's technically a UFO. So um, obviously we should have shot it down. Good for biting shooting it down. But I'm sort of curious as to why it took so long and why they allowed it to cover the entire country. Our our huge country, starting in Alaska and then touching another uh, country. I'm not surprised the Canadians didn't do anything about it because, you know, they don't want to start anything with with China but we cannot allow people to treat us like that and we can't allow foreign objects from China just to be floating around in the sky the size of three school lessons it makes no sense. So should have shot it down earlier or whatever we shot it down. Um, I think that what this mourn was was a test of the response of the United States when a physical threat appears. So it wasn't a physical threat in the way that it was a fighter plane It wasn't armed at all. But when I say physical, I mean, what is our physical response to an incident of China doing something? So there are much more efficient ways for them to get information about our physical geography and other things than a weather balloon. I mean, I'd have to believe that China is a bit more sophisticated than that in the idea that they don't need to put a balloon in the sky to get pictures of things because it's not the 1880s anymore where you need a hot air balloon to see something. So they could have used satellites, one of the myriad satellites that they have in orbit, and that would have sufficed way better, way more covertly, and just probably more efficiently, period, than this balloon. So I think that less than China trying to steal things from us or information or or anything, this was more of a what will the US do? What will this president particularly do if we put something over their airspace and make it really provocative? Which would be with a giant piece of machinery just being real sus and covering their their whole country? What are they going to do? And that and his response tells them a lot, because you can see the rate that it took him to respond to it physically. So, okay, when was the first time that Biden said something about this? And I got to go back and look this up. But again, this is what I want for a future conversation. But I'm just bringing this up because it's so fresh and new. So how long did it take Biden to respond to it? Well, we know that it took him the 28th, 29th, 30th, uh, 31st, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. It took him eight days to physically react to this. Eight days. And there's... I mean, if this was really their best way of trying to steal or get information on the US, that's a long time. Other people are saying that, oh, he could have jammed the signal, he could have not shot it down, and he could have whatever, because there's ways the military can block that. But the the entire point here is that you don't let people do that. So you have to show strength. Uh, It was the right decision for him to shoot it down. Again, should have just been sooner. So uh, Biden failed to react. immediately it took him a long time so that tells china something is that this president oh he's he is really not in the mood to you know screw around too much but when push comes to shove he actually will because he actually did shoot it down so in in a way this would have been better if we shot it down sooner because it would have showed them no we're seriously we are seriously for real about protecting ourselves and our friends like in Taiwan, who Biden has already said that we will go to war over Taiwan. Um, but are we going to go over to war after six months? Are we going to do what we did with Ukraine? Are we going to just send them aid first and and then maybe we'll go physically in there and not? Uh, he's been pretty clear so far that we wouldn't just send aid, we would actually send troops. But again, this was a way just for China to test what our um, capacity is like for what our willingness to go to war is is actually like, because the physical response is what they were looking for. And they said, oh, they have the, they reserve the right to punish us for doing that, for blah, blah, blah. If this was a weather balloon and it came from Canada, well, number one, we wouldn't really be worried about it. But number two, if we took it down, they probably wouldn't care too much. If it was Britain's, they wouldn't care too much. If it was France's, if it was Spain's, if it was whoever's and it made it all the way to the US and we took it down, It wouldn't be that big a deal. So why is it that big a deal that they did it to us? Because they're trying to provoke us, because they're trying to make this not their fault, because they're trying to gauge a reaction when they don't know necessarily what it's going to be. And they were too afraid to do that when Trump was president because he would have done something immediately and immediately got on the TV and told them basically we're to shove it. So this is a really interesting time based on that. We are going to get more information out about it uh, as as they um, probably look at this thing physically. They shot it down off the coast of South Carolina in the ocean. It was shot down safely. Okay, good. Um, And it landed in the water, and that might be why they didn't shoot it down before, because they didn't want it to hit a bunch of stuff or whatever. But I feel like you could – doesn't matter. So it landed in the ocean and they're probably taking it back to research it and, and see exactly what it is, what kind of data it was transmitting, and see if they could capture any of that. And then we'll get an update after they after they do that. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds, but this is just the start. So that's what I alluded to earlier when I said whatever war is coming next is. It already basically started, and it started with Russia. So Russia's the short-term threat, right? Russia's the short-term threat in an era where they can't sustain themselves. They do not have the economy to do it. um, And they do not have the willpower from their people because they're all defecting as soon as their draft numbers get called. So Russia's the short-term threat. Russia's the threat for the next maybe two years, tops. If they're able to sustain themselves even that long, but their economy is crumbling from it Um, it, and they might not have seen the effects quite yet because their economy is so big and they have undoubtedly started increasing trade with China and they're relying more on China for those things. But when push comes to shove and China is quite possibly engaged with the United States there, that all of that support is probably going to slow. So... Russia is the short-term threat because they don't have longevity in their arsenal. They don't have a super strong economy right now, although they do have one of the biggest economies in the world, but compare that to someone like the U.S., and it is very small compared to Japan, and it's even half the size of that, and Germany. So they are going to be out outdone relatively soon in the grand scheme of things. Two years is a very long time. A full year was also a very long time, but... Um, Something's Something is going to happen, but I think that for Russia to actually completely, for the war with them to stop, they have to collapse. Um, we have to just outlast them because Putin can't lose this. He's not going to quit. The way that they solve their problems over there is that they have revolutions. And the last time that something like this happened, an entire economic system collapsed. And the time before that, an entire economic system collapsed in the form of the Um, in the form of the monarchy that was there. And right October happened in 1917. And that's when the Soviet socialists prevailed and established an entire new system. Then World War II actually kind of helped them, but that was catastrophic for many other reasons, and they got help from the United States um, in in some economic capacity that allowed them sort of to, to maintain themselves, but they also took over 22 other territories. Um, so their economy stretched over 12, 13 time zones, and it still, I think, is over 12. And then that system could not sustain itself. So by 1989, 1988, whenever the Berlin Wall collapsed or fell, and then later, I guess, really ninety two would have been when their overnight their system again completely eroded, and then they had a new um, a new government formed in the in the Russian Federation, where Boris Yeltsin was the first president and was a drunkard and led that country pretty much down the drain again. Just it, it never got out of the drain, but. They had a huge famine in the 90s, which is why so few people were even born in the 90s. And they've had a birth rate problem ever since. And the government has been offering the subsidiaries for the last several years, even before the invasion of Ukraine, because they want to desperately get their population up because they need more people. Because not only do they keep dying from useless wars, they die from famines. They die from everything, and then they they leave. So Russia won't be such a huge deal for too much longer And again, I know that even a year is too much for this because they've been able to do a lot of damage. But the long-term real problem is China because you do not have the same problem with China. You do not have the same problem with their economy just all of a sudden collapsing if they go to war and people defecting and blah, blah, blah. They've got over a billion people that they can force to do basically whatever they want and they control them down to the most minute detail, basically. The type of information that they receive or that they even have access to. And we've all known that for a long time. But they have been building their military up for a while, too, because it has traditionally been pretty poor, because they haven't had to worry about anything. No one's having to invade China, and China wasn't necessarily looking to invade other places, but now they are. And they have the world's second largest economy, and it is very big. They still are the largest exporter in the world, I'm pretty sure, by a lot, by manufacturing purposes. Um, They're the biggest manufacturing hub in the world still, too, and they have such an ability to feed their war machine if they want to. And they started to test it with Hong Kong. Britain dropped the ball on that one because they signed a deal with them that said that you could do this. Basically, after 25 years, you could do this, and they signed this a while ago when, um, when China wasn't even really that, wasn't anywhere near as strong as it is now. But they ceded Hong Kong to be independent, and then that said, you have to China, you need to make sure that. They stay independent for at least 25 years. And then after that, this clause is over. Okay, everybody agreed to it. And then the clause came up and and now boom, Hong Kong is basically part of China. And then they're doing the same thing with Taiwan. And Taiwan is a bit more complicated. Taiwan was not the same situation at all. But China has seen Taiwan as part of China for a long time, even though Taiwan has been separate and has been recognized by the rest of the world as separate. Um, and that's where the US relies so much on critical technology um, hardware from. And that is why Biden is committing to protecting it. But what happens when China goes for it? They are very close. Yeah, I'm looking at a map here right now. Let's see if I can pull it up here where Taiwan is. And it's only got to be maybe 100 miles off the Chinese coast. Let's just see how far is Taiwan. From China. Uh, roughly 100 miles. I that kind of thought. So it's only roughly 100 miles away um, and they would have to get to it by sea. So, But I mean, China can do that. And they can land and they can just totally take it. But they can also do what they did before. But Taiwan is putting up much more of a fight than um, Hong Kong was. But that is just because of its size and its strategic positioning with the United States and stuff. And there also is a land bridge between Hong Kong and China. Anyways, these are all super concerning situations. That we need to be prepared for, and just things that I I really want to talk about further and develop with with a panel um, where it's not just me, where I can bounce some of these ideas off people that have different perspectives than I do, who have more just world experience than I do because they're you know either older or have just had have just had more experience and um, and sort of see what what they have to say about this. So this is uh, this is sort of what it has come to, and this is what we've missed in a really basic long term perspective since we have been on the air last so i don't want to want to take up too much of anybody's time uh today with with just me on here because it could get pretty could get pretty boring listening to me talk but um i do want to actually get into kind of some talk here for a second so i'm going to switch gears and i'm just going to end on something uh something a lot a lot lighter conversation than what i did um than what i just did for the last probably half hour (laughs) because um we need to talk about some other things sometimes to make sure that we don't go totally insane so anyways i bought a new car recently and i have i'm a first time for buyer last time and i i wasn't necessarily too big on that um on that brand before but you know what i figured they have uh, they have some pretty good vehicles their their trucks specifically are i mean they're the best selling vehicles in the entire world and um maybe i should try it i didn't buy a truck i bought an explorer but the 35 naturally aspirated i thought was pretty cool and um the, the vehicle itself was great. Um, actually, it had its problems, but I think that's just because it was abused by the previous owner. I did not buy a brand new. But anyways, um, I just want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the car world and talk specifically about this engine, this new one that I have. So this new one is out of a forward edge and it uses, because it's the ST, which I think is the Sport Track uh, version, Is um, it uses the 2.7 EcoBoost Nano engine and the 2.7 is, you know, it's a, Twin turbo V6, that's what it is. So it's a twin turbo V6, um, technically part of the EcoBoost family, although they're not calling it EcoBoost anymore. And it has uh, dual overhead cams, and this is manufactured. Well, it's assembled in Lima, Ohio. Uh, and this is where they also had made the 3.0, which was the twin turbo that they had put in the MK, the Lincoln MKZ and the Continental in 2017 is when it came out. That was a brand new engine at the time and it was really beefy, really tough. I don't know if they put that in a regular um in a regular Ford vehicle, like an act with the Ford, you know, line. And because this was just for Lincoln. To turbo for. Yeah, Ford Authority. Okay, here we go. Okay, so that one was in the Ford Explorer. Ooh. <laughs> That's pretty good. So that one had 400 horse at 400 pound-feet of torque. Um, Again, came out of the same assembly site in Lima, Ohio. But this oh, it looks like they ramped it up to 494 horsepower at 630 pound feet of torque. It was an impressive engine when it came out. Um, There were two different options in the Lincolns. You could have gotten it in a front wheel drive at 350 horsepower, 400 pound feet of torque, or 400 horsepower at 400 pound feet of torque. But it looks like the Aviator plug-in hybrid. This is is a newer uh, SUV that Lincoln has come out with that is actually really impressive. And that one has a battery that will assist it, again, because it's a hybrid. It's an all-wheel drive model, and it gets 494 horsepower and 630 pound-feet of torque. That is a beast. That is a ridiculous engine. But anyways, back to this 2.7, because this one's mine. This one is in, it started out in their F-150 in 2015, just to show that you can get V8 power out of a V6, uh, even a small V6, because the 2.7 is tiny, comparatively. Speaking for the U.S. anyways. Um, So they put it in an F-150 to start with, and they had it in a Fusion, in the upper end Fusion, which is impressive because this engine makes 335 horsepower at 400 pound-feet of torque, and it is a 2.7 twin turbo. That is pretty impressive. That is, if you ever get the chance to test drive one, I highly suggest that you do. Um, You'll pay for this engine, but it is so worth it. It's not too terrible on gas. And even when you're on the highway and you're doing 70 miles an hour, you know, the speed limit, when you're doing the speed limit on the highway, and if you need to pass somebody or whatever, you still have something when you're in top gear, which for that car, I think it has eight. Uh, I can't remember. I've had the car for about a month now, and I've been away for three weeks. No, I've been, I've had it, yeah. I've been away for three weeks and I've had it for a month, so I haven't been able to. I was actually as much as I want. So the Ford edge, um, ST transmission. Pretty sure no, it's an eight speed, right? It is an eight speed. Um, it has paddle shifters and everything. One thing that I don't like about it is, uh, it, you know, it's all wheel drive. Obviously, um, it's the intelligent all wheel drive, so really it's front. But it has this beefy. Twin turbo V6 in it, and it makes this puttering noise when the turbo actually kicks in. This is the only car that I've ever driven where the sport mode actually, uh, like changes the way that their car behaves. So when you're just in regular drive mode, you're not going to get even a ton of power out of it. It's probably only maybe 200 horse if you're just driving a normal, and then the re- the other 135 kicks in if you put it in sport mode. But then when it when it spools the turbos, you can hear it go <laughs> this noise and it's weird but um regardless it's a beautiful car and um and it has a really impressive just drivetrain in it and luckily I have uh, an unlimited um an unlimited drivetrain warranty on it in case something does happen with those turbos but nothing ever really does these these engines have a really good reputation and uh, I think they're just really impressive I don't like them for a truck to be honest I, I can't say that I've ever driven a truck with it but you know what the more that i think about it i had a 2000 i had this is this is old but i had an 03 ram that had a 4.7 v8 in it and that was you know it got a lot of torque but i mean it it was 240 horsepower this is another 100 horsepower more than that and the torque was probably around 280 something like that and this is well over 100 more pound feet of torque than that truck had so i don't know why this this couldn't just perform even better than that did and that engine was fine and i mean it's even it's performing almost at hemi level almost uh with the heavy, you're probably going to get 400 horse at i mean over 400 pound feet of torque probably 420 450. so it's and it's not going to have to work as hard but I mean, this is overblown with with the two turbos on it. But it's it's super impressive. The transmission is a bit clunky, though. I have noticed when it's in sport mode, it will it will just dump itself into gears with no warning, and it is they are hard shifts. But and you don't, I you know what I put it in reverse though when it was not in when it was not in its sport mode, and it's like clanks. That transmission clanks itself sometimes, so it's. It's pretty rough, but honestly, when you're driving in just a normal drive mode, it's a a really smooth ride, and it's I really trust the car, and I just love the power out of it. So if you're somebody like me, if you have kids or something like that, and you want to sporty your car, but you also want to be able to take your children around and have a lot of storage space in the back to go on as big of a grocery run as you want to, but you still want to be able to beat pretty much everybody else you see on the road unless they're in a Hellcat or something, or a Scat Pack, or there's a lot that can be done on that. Gonna, I'm not gonna try to say this is a like performance vehicle but it is a four performance model of the edge and I think that it's just great and I just wanted to say that um I've had nothing but a good time with it the only again the only thing that I don't really like about it is the constant fluttering noise from the turbos which I thought at first might have been the belt I'm gonna I'm gonna have them look at it when I take it in for an oil change next and say hey but I've heard that everybody else, I sort of have these problems too, and that's kind of that's kind of annoying. But I mean, if it just makes the noise and there's nothing really wrong with it, although I do wonder why it's doing that, then whatever. But the car is still extremely comfortable. It has all the bells and whistles the ST model does: pano moonroof. Um, it's like the only structural parts of the car are the pillars, the A, B, and C pillar, and then like you know the frame on the roof and stuff. And then most of it's glass, and it's really nice. And it's just great. Um, I just I just love it to death. So um, I highly suggest that if you're in the market for something like that, and if you're a person like me, that you go look at it. Uh, the 2.7, I think, is great. Uh, but in other news, because that is um, – because that's a V6, and it's just, uh, it's just trying to be V8 level, and we're starting to see V8s disappear, The um, GM has committed – What is it? $854 million to developing a new small block V8. The sixth generation of of its V8 uh, class engines. Anyways, I don't have too much information on this. uh, But that means that we're going to see V8s in GM products for, I mean, at least what, the next five to eight years because you got to get your money back out of that. $900 million, basically, is what they're throwing into developing what might be their last generation small block V8s ever. Because most people are going to electric and they're just and obviously saying to hell with V8s, but I mean, this is a this is a pretty significant um significant move for a auto manufacturer to still be trying to do this. So... So this is, this is going to be interesting to see what comes out of it. They're going to be putting these, it looks like, in their Corvettes and stuff too. So it would obviously, which still sort of demands a V8 in it. But yeah, I wish I could talk about it more. I wish there was more of a GM guy here for me to bounce those uh, numbers off of and sort of talk about it a little bit. So we're going to see V8s around for the foreseeable future, which foreseeable future, again, being probably at least five years, in my opinion, because... These engines aren't going to be available until the end of this year, next year. So minus a year there from the announcement, but Mattis actually had a year there. So um, yeah, I would say probably five years. So that'll be interesting to see what happens. Um Dodge or, Dodge is probably the last holdout for people just saying, I'm not going to not participating in the electric revolution, but now they are because they introduced that electric RAM and that electric car. That honestly, they're doing such a bad job. They look like garbage, in my opinion. I think that they just look like just not very good. And I'm not interested in an electric Dodge that has fake exhaust sounds as if it was still a gasser. I mean, I think that is just so stupid. I think that is so stupid. I think that it's so tacky. I think that it's so cheap. And I think that it's just really tearing that brand apart that already isn't that strong in the first place. They're targeting, I think. I don't even think that they understand their target audience anymore because they don't want that. Their target audience, the target market doesn't want an electric vehicle, anyways. I know a lot of people that are sort of like that, and I don't think that they're all about this electric revolution. Um, that doesn't mean that Dodge shouldn't make a commitment to go over because that's the way that the world's going, like it or not. It doesn't matter what that small, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, that small target market wants because Dodge is a business and needs to stay afloat and they need to sell to other people and not just those types of people. Um, And just because they have an inability to recognize that the world is making a change and is not going to rely on petroleum anymore to power their vehicles because they're finding more efficient ways to do it. Electric is not more efficient right now, but it will be. And it is a lot more powerful. Any electric vehicle that you can see is automatically base performing better than its equivalent in a um, gas powered category. It just is. They The batteries might not be as, um, as good or do the same things that you need it to that a gas engine does because you can't just refuel it as easily and keep going um you might not be able to get the range out of it but we're getting there and it takes a commitment from the entire automotive manufacturing community to get there so that's what we're looking at anyways this is where i'm going to stop for today thank you everybody for tuning back in um i hope to see you sometime soon with a panel for us to for us to discuss some of the topics that we even discussed today and bounce those ideas off of people and then as more development as more developments happen um you will just have more to talk about and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this balloon because um i mean even this time next week or even in just a couple days so much stuff is going to have developed so i hope that this isn't too out of date when you listen to it Uh, i hope that you enjoy it and i hope that you keep listening and share it so thank you very much and we will see you soon